Welcome to the first episode of the second season of Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast. I'm Steve Mencher. Preventable tragedy in Flint, Michigan, began to spiral out of control seven years ago this week. It was a recent moment where environmental justice moved into the foreground. We're now in another such moment. For the next several months, our podcast will track the catastrophic toll that environmental racism has taken on so many Americans, especially during this time of COVID-19. We'll also be looking at some of the solutions being proposed by those who have advocated for their communities for decades. Those activists insist that their neighborhoods no longer be dumping grounds for society's poisons. When I first saw this story in the nonprofit digital news outlet The City, I knew it could be our first episode. I was thrilled that the writer who told it so well in print, S.A.O. Messe, was willing to tell it in sound. At the end of the episode, you'll hear about all the partnerships that made this story come alive. For now, here's Struggling to Breathe in the Bronx. The day before she passed, we got an update. They were like, yeah, she's doing great. Like, she's recovering so well. And we're so amazed that at her age that she's recovering better than anybody we've ever, we've ever seen. Literally the next day... Um, his uncle calls hysterical. I got the doctor on the line and I'm not understanding what he's saying. I don't understand what he's saying. And then my husband says out loud, what you mean? She just died. And I fell on the floor. I fell out. That's Alicia Beret. Last May, her husband lost his grandmother, who was really more like a mom, to COVID-19. She was 86 years old. Well, her name was Joan Terrero. She was born May 1st, 1934. She grew up in the Bronx. She was a nurse, I believe. She was very calm. She told me herself, she said, I don't don't like coffee. I don't like that smoking. I don't like that drinking. She would rather sit down and read a book. She was into everything. She she went and studied Jehovah Witness. She went to the mosque, got some Muslim in her. She was a very kind woman. Kind, mischievous, snarky woman. (laughs) Joan raised 10 kids on her own. And in her late 50s, she became the primary caregiver for her grandson, Alicia's husband, Jonathan. My grandmother took him when he was two months old. With the circumstances that he was in, he could have been worse. She raised that man to be an amazing, loving man. They were very close. At one point, Alicia and her husband even lived with Joan. If my husband's cooking in the kitchen, she'll be looking in there like this, because our favorite thing to do was eat. And she'll watch my husband cook and be like, you almost done? Let me just get that little piece right there. Because typically we'll just wait till all the food is done so we can eat. No, let me just get a piece of that. Joan lived in her apartment in the Bronx until she needed more care. Then she moved to a nursing home nearby. Last year, during the first weeks of the lockdown in New York City, there was an outbreak there. The last time we did see her, uh, we saw her through FaceTime and she couldn't talk back to us. And we were like, hey, Grandma. We're here. We love you. And I honestly feel like if COVID didn't happen, she would have lived longer. She would have made it a little bit longer. She would have held on for us. Yeah. Joan Torero is one of more than 30,000 New Yorkers who have died from COVID-19. 
I heard about her story last year when I was working as a reporter at The City, a nonprofit newsroom that covers the five boroughs of New York. The City's Missing Them project has documented more than 2,000 stories of New Yorkers who've died from the virus. The team has received hundreds of messages from those mourning someone. Messages like this one, where Elias Melton's grandson remembers his grandpa. And I just want to say I hope he um, is happy in the place where he is since right now. So, okay. Weeks after COVID-19 arrived in New York, a colleague and I at the city crunched the numbers. Here's what we found. Out of all of the boroughs in New York City, the Bronx was seeing the highest death rate. Residents here, the majority of whom are Black and Latino, were almost twice as likely to die from the virus compared with people who lived elsewhere in the city. Public health experts I spoke with suggested a few reasons for this. The Bronx is, uh, is kind of unique, and it has been unique pre-pandemic. The Bronx is distinguished by its deep and concentrated and, you know, kind of longstanding poverty, by uh, health disparities and, you know, adverse health outcomes that disproportionately affect residents. It's also marked by kind of a lower income uh, and much more essential worker base uh, of residents compared to other parts of the city. That's Diana Hernandez, Associate Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She studies the social determinants of health, researching how where we live influences how healthy we are. The Bronx has some of the highest rates of diabetes, asthma, kidney and heart disease in the country, conditions that make you more likely to die of COVID-19. So you have uh, more folks living in a housing unit and overcrowded housing doubled and tripled up with families uh, that are kind of struggling to make ends meet economically also means that there are many more people potentially at risk when an infection uh, affects the household. You also have kind of greater dependence on public transit and occupations uh, that have been now characterized as essential work mean that people have to be kind of out and about and they're more outward facing, right? So they're more publicly facing. And that has also kind of contributed to lots of risk. Professor Diana Hernandez is from the Bronx. She told me that growing up here, in a Puerto Rican community, informed her research as an academic. I've also been thinking about my own connection to the borough. I was born at Montefiore's Albert Einstein Hospital in the North Bronx. My parents, who came to the U.S. from Nigeria more than three decades ago, first settled in a neighborhood here called Williamsbridge. One evening in our apartment, when I was very, very young, I began breathing erratically in my crib, my parents would later tell me. I'd been running a fever all day, but something about my breathing worried my parents. Here's my dad. Uh, but you were breathing very fast. You seemed incapable of catching your breath. So I said to your mother, no, something is wrong here. We should get this child to the hospital right away. It took quite some time, but eventually saw you and... Uh, that's when I heard the term wheezing for the first time, and that's when they diagnosed um, asthma. 
So they diagnosed me with asthma that evening. What is your first thought? You're hearing this. You know, what, what's going yeah. through your it, mind? It, it was shocking. First of all, I was happy that at least we knew what it was and that it was something that uh, they seemed well aware of. But at that point, something began to kick into view, namely that all of the talk I had heard in the past, all of the things I had read about asthma in the Bronx, um, this was it. And this thing was in my home. Asthma was, and still is, a common diagnosis in the Bronx. According to the city's health department, 20,000 kids are hospitalized for asthma each year. Around 40% of them live in the Bronx. It is almost as if asthma is a natural part of childhood in the Bronx. That's how common it is. That's Congressmember Richie Torres, who represents the South Bronx in the House of Representatives. I called him in January, shortly after he was sworn in. I mean, you know it really well, too, right? You're someone who, like me, you grew up in the Bronx. Um, you've breathed, you know, the, this problematic air. How has this affected you in your life? As a child, I had severe struggles with asthma. You know, the asthma problem was a fixture in my childhood. And I was repeatedly in and out of the emergency room because of severe asthma attacks. The public housing development, which I grew up is right across the street from the Cross Bronx. You hear the sounds of truck traffic, congested truck traffic, and you're breathing in pollutants from diesel exhaust. And beyond the expressway, when I was growing up, it was common for buildings to emit number six oil. So you would see the black smoke emanating from these buildings uh, that would then invade your lungs. Definitely. I had asthma growing up as a child in the Bronx as well. It's something that it seems like almost everyone has it, or we all know someone who has it. You know, I, I would be in school and kids would be, you know, sitting around a table all being nebulized. And to me, growing up, it was normal because so many people had asthma. And it wasn't until my parents moved out of the city um, and we were breathing cleaner air and we had a yard and we could run around and play that we realized that that was not normal. Um, kids don't have to have a kind of life sentence of asthma. Um, and that was, for me, the first manifestation of environmental injustice and the iniquity that we deal with. We're all created equal, but not all of us have equally breathable air. Right? The quality of the air you breathe often depends on your zip code. And to be in the Bronx is often to live or attend school near a highway and therefore breathe in air pollutants that cause you chronic disease. I think we've seen environmental racism come to light during COVID-19. And it's no accident that the South Bronx, which has long been polluted by the environmental effects of the Cross Bronx Expressway, had the highest rates of COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. That the South Bronx is haunted by the ghost of Robert Moses. Robert Moses was a public official from the mid 20th century who had an incredible influence on the built environment in New York City and many other cities across the country. That's Kate Slevin, the senior vice president of the Regional Plan Association. She's talking about the legacy of Robert Moses, who was known as New York's master builder. At one point, he was head of the Parks Department, the City Planning Department, and the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority. Some people thought that cities should be planned around communities, 
but not Robert Moses. He tended to favor construction of highways and parkways and the way those highways were built it, it, in, in many urban areas tore through many communities, especially uh, lower income communities, communities of color. He was a controversial figure even then, and he had his many enemies. Back in 1929, the Regional Plan Association, where Slevin works, proposed a network of highways to prepare for the automobile age. One of them was the $140 million Cross Bronx Expressway. The highway would cut through the Bronx, connecting New Jersey to Connecticut and even Long Island. Robert Moses pushed for the plan and got it approved. So it's a vital regional connection for travelers, for commuters. However, it was constructed and tore through so many communities in the Bronx. Thousands of families were displaced by the construction in the 1950s and 60s. And to Robert Moses, they were dispensable. Your city station brings you an address by the Honorable Robert Moses, Commissioner of Parks. Here now to talk on the rebuilding of New York is Commissioner Moses. I don't believe that we've done any very substantial amount of harm. You're never going to get uh, unanimous approval of any of these projects. Uh, If you try to please everybody, you're not going to accomplish anything. There must be people who are discommoded, inconvenienced, or call it what you will, on the old theory that you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. The Cross Bronx transformed the borough, and not just physically. White, mostly middle-class families fled the South Bronx for the suburbs, leaving black and Puerto Rican residents behind. Kate Slevin told me similar dynamics played out elsewhere in the country. The construction came at great cost to the communities that are there, to our overall health of our environment. The Regional Plan Association is trying to improve things in the Bronx, backing an ambitious proposal to deck over parts of the Cross Bronx Expressway. It's basically putting the highway in a tunnel. The plan that we proposed was to deck over portions of it. Uh, You know, it cuts through many neighborhoods and there's a number of bridges uh, above the highway. And so if you decked from sort of bridge to bridge and took it piece by piece, you could reclaim so much land and improve public health, improve access for people. Nothing is in the works yet. After work one day, I went by the Cross Bronx Expressway to take a closer look. Right now we're at 174th Street and the Grand Concourse overlooking the Cross Bronx Expressway. It's just after 5 p.m. so it's rush hour. You can hear the cars in the distance um, all trying to move to their respective destinations. It's pretty loud out here. Imagine what this looked like before, like it was like buildings and like always blows my mind. And I guess decking this over would be like putting like a sleeve over it or like something over it to absorb like the noise and a lot of the like pollution that's emitted on the highway. I just saw someone on a bike or something down there. Extreme sports. 
lots of cars move through here all the time as you can see we're here during rush hour but it's always pretty busy and definitely always really loud it turns out that long-term exposure to air pollution like living near a busy highway has been linked throughout the pandemic to a higher risk of dying of COVID-19. Recently, scientists at the State University of New York paired up with journalists at ProPublica, the investigative nonprofit newsroom, to study this. They created a ranking of where people were dying of COVID-19 and the quality of the air, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. They ranked all the counties in the country, and the Bronx fared the worst. But it's not just the Bronx. Looking closely at the EPA air pollution maps, I noticed high levels of traffic-related emissions near many neighborhoods that were hit hard by the virus, like Manhattan's Chinatown and Washington Heights, as well as parts of Queens and Brooklyn near the Long Island Expressway and the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway. I wanted to talk to people in these neighborhoods, so I turned to the Missing Them Memorial for clues. For months, the team has been crowdsourcing stories of people who died, using public records, like voter registration and property data, to map out where they lived. I noticed a cluster of people who lived near the Cross Bronx Expressway, including Joan Torero, who we heard about at the beginning of the episode. Turns out, for 20 years, Joan lived just two blocks away from the busy highway. Now, her great-grandson, Miguel, lives nearby and he is struggling with asthma. Every day, twice a day, his mom Alicia gives him his asthma medication. Today is December 1st. It is 9.50 a.m. Um, I will be giving Miguel his asthma medication. It is the morning dosage. Miguel is my three-year-old son. He was diagnosed with asthma at two, October 2019. Right now I'm getting the spacer and the little puppy mask that he has because it makes it more fun for him to take it. Come Miguel. Come on. Putting him on bed. Come Miguel. <gasps> One, two, three. One, no, 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 slow. One, two, big and slow. <gasps> Three, four, five, <gasps> six. Come on, do it again. <gasps> Seven, <gasps> eight. Nine, ten, boy, five. In March, after nearly a year of communicating over the phone and Zoom, I got to meet Alicia and her family face to face. Hey! Hi! Hey! Hey! Good. Definitely come in. My name is Miguel. It's March. Miguel has made it through the winter without an asthma flare-up. He's been okay decently, like this whole entire winter. I thank God we haven't had to have a doctor or a hospital visit. But four days ago, he started coming down with a cold. He has a cough, which is aggravating his asthma. Alicia is worried. But my biggest concern is the cold that he just recently got. He's been coughing like 
ridiculously and i'm like oh my god no i done had to give him the pump so many like so much since he got that cold i was like no 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 we gotta do it more it's cold outside so alicia switched miguel's pulmonologist appointment to a virtual visit i got to listen in Sounds like I need to upgrade his dose just a little bit more, um, just because the weather is kind of unpredictable, and if he's reacting this way to a little cold, mm-hmm. he should be much stronger by now. The win- This winter was going to be the test, right? Yeah. Because, um, the winter is always when kids do the worst, so if he ended up coming out of this winter with this little episode you're having now, then most likely he needs just a little bit more help. News that Miguel has to ramp up his asthma medication is frustrating for Alicia. She has to get prior approval from her insurance company for his refills. We were doing so good, and then this was the actual test. Like she said, this was the actual test, and it's like, I'm not good at failing tests. When she said the thing about the insurance, again, it pisses me off because I'm like, now she has to do this whole thing with getting permission from the insurance for something that's going to keep my son alive. So, Since being diagnosed in 2019, Miguel has been hospitalized numerous times. I remember when I got that news and I felt like my world shattered. I don't know why, like the second that they told me your son has asthma, it was October 23rd. They said, your son has asthma. And I was like, what do you mean he has asthma? My child, he runs, he jumps, he's happy. Is this the end of his life? Like, is he going to be confined to an inhaler? I was like, oh my God, is my baby going to die one day if he doesn't have his inhaler? Working with Miguel's doctors, Alicia has developed an asthma action plan. In the boys' room, neatly stowed in large Macy's shopping bags, she's armed with an impressive asthma arsenal. The family stockpile includes dozens of vials of albuterol, a drug Miguel takes daily through an inhaler or with a nebulizer, which turns the medicine into mist that can be inhaled. Alicia showed us the stash. This is Miguel's bed. As you can see with all the sonic all the sonic figurines and stuff. We put it right behind his bed. So in case of emergencies. But as you can see, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. This is after, because I've had much more than this. This is after I stopped using the liquid form. Because now he's using the inhaler. And this is the monculicit. I can never say it right. I bought I will say three separate um, nebulizer machines because I said this, my child is severely asthmatic. He needs to have a nebulizer machine wherever he lays his head at. I I bought one from my mother's house, I bought one from my house, and I bought one to travel with. So that if if I go anywhere with my son, if I'm going to sleep over in Maine, where I have him in Maine, Ohio, Florida, Long Island, I travel with that nebulizer. That's not cheap. Miguel shares a room with his older brother. Okay, I, my name is Jonathan Elliott, and I am eight years old. So when your brother is sick, how do you feel? I feel kind of scared. Why? I, I, I just don't want him to be sick. Like, I don't want him to spend the rest of his life in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Alicia, who is standing at the foot of his bed, starts tearing up. What happened, Mommy? Mm-hmm. And you know mom gets emotional when you get like that, when you talk about your brother. Remember when he was in the hospital a lot? Yeah. How did you feel about that? I felt sad. I know, you missed him, right? You missed him bothering you? 
On top of the concern over Miguel's health, the family is still dealing with losing Grandma Joan. In the foyer of the Elliot's home, there's a shrine on a dresser dedicated to her. This is all my grandmother's stuff, by the way. This is her frame that she has. That's her um, African mask over there. And these are her little, um, little masks that she has. And I put them up there, and I'm going to put more pictures up. I got to get pictures of my grandparents, too, there. Alicia makes a point to leave Joan a piece of her favorite candy on the altar. And usually we have Butterfingers out, but we had it out for like three months. So I was like, okay, Granny, I think you had enough time to eat it. It's time to take it away, put something else next week. Grandma Joan's birthday is coming up on May 1st. It's also the anniversary of her death. Alicia's husband is not ready to talk about it yet. Recently, Alicia joined a grief circle to help her process the loss. I've been to two of the grief circles already and it's been so liberating to be able to express your grief with others that understand what you've gone through. And the way in her prompts are like so inspiring and like it makes you want to talk. Like one of her prompts were saying, um, what does grief look like for you? And then I realized my grief looks silent because I grieve in silence. I grieve at night. I grieve when my kids are sleeping. I, my, my grief looks like wet pillowcases because I cry at night. I cry at night. I, I read things at night. I reminisce at night when everybody else is sleeping. So I, my grief is silent. Eight-year-old Jonathan misses his great-grandma too. We laugh together. We, we, I actually remember us um, telling stories. And one time, and one time she told me this creepy story. Uh, if you could tell her anything right now, what would you want to tell her? I, I would tell her that I miss her. How much? Um, 3,000. I miss her 3,000. S.A. Olamese and Anjali Choi reported and produced this episode of Living Downstream, Struggling to Breathe in the Bronx. It was produced in collaboration with Northern California Public Media, Mensch Media, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, and Columbia Journalism School's Stabile Center of Investigative Journalism. The episode is part of Missing Them from the nonprofit digital newsroom, The City. Missing Them is an ongoing collaborative project to remember every New Yorker killed by COVID-19. For more, visit thecity.nyc slash missingthem. Our researcher was Caitlin Antonios. Special thanks to Sheila Coronel, Derek Kravitz, Terry Paris Jr., Will Welsh, WNYC New York, and the Broadcast and Multimedia Technology Department at Columbia Journalism School. Music for this episode includes Lucky Massive Dangerous by Speck, and Rabioso by Guy Paolucci. Thanks to Billy Ray Drums and Chabon Decay. The Living Downstream theme music is by David Shulman, and we also used an excerpt from his Five Lives. I'm your host and senior producer, Steve Mencher, and I also mixed and story edited this episode. Chris Lee is radio executive producer, and Darren Lachelle is the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media. To learn more about capping or covering the Cross Bronx Expressway, there's an episode of the podcast Healthy Bronx about that. I found it fascinating and a great companion to what you've been listening to. It just dropped, and you can find it on their website, bronxpolicy.org slash healthbronxpodcast. 
Subscribe to Living Downstream on Apple Podcasts. Comment on it and rate it there. And find it wherever you get your podcasts. Find more about us on NPR One. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at norcalpublicmedia.org. Next time, MacArthur Fellow Catherine Coleman Flowers, a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. We'll talk about her faith and why clean water and improved sewage are at the heart of her crusade to improve lives in Alabama's Black Belt and elsewhere. See you then.